This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. All right, if you guys would like to uh, go ahead and find your seats. Awesome. Before we jump into the word today, um, there's just an announcement on uh, GCs and DNAs. And, um, you know, the reason why we have these is to see Denver transformed by the beauty of the gospel. We do that by meeting in GCs and in DNAs on a weekly basis. Um, GCs are usually a uh, bigger group of people that you find in the area that you live in. Uh, you share a meal and um, you just get to discuss the word from the week prior. Um, and then DNAs, you're able to just delve even deeper into that word um, with a smaller group of people. I highly encourage you guys to get set up with one if you're not already. Um, if you're not, by all means, please come and touch, touch base with me uh, this morning um, after the service. If you guys would please stand with me as we read the word. I'm reading from Isaiah 22, 1 through 25. <clears throat> the oracle concerning the valley of the vision. What do you mean that you have gone up all of you to the housetops, you are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together without the bow. They were captured. All of you were found. <clears throat> All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore I say to you, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the God, Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of the vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting of the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stands at the gates. He has taken away the coverings of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and, the, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you do not look to him who did it, or see him who planned it long ago. In that day, the Lord of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this inquiry will not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to the steward, to Shnebna, who is over the household, and say to him, what have you to, what have you to do here, and whom have you here, that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself, and who cut out a tomb on the on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you into you, will hurl you violently, O young strong man. You will seize firm, he will seize a firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into the wind, into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots. You shame of the masters of the house. I will trust, I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station, in that I will call you my servant Echelim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe you with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to, this land, to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. And I will place on his head, on his shoulders, the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall be open." And I will fasten him a peg in a secure place, and I will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring, and issue every small vessel from the cups of all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will cut down and fall, and, lo and the load that was on it will be cut off. For the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the God. Um. Yeah, let's let's pray, um, and then hopefully we can make uh, make some sense of what uh, Abraham just read for us. So, 
Let's start out with just some prayer. Father, I thank you that you are holy. I thank you that that we can worship you. I thank you that in this world we live in, you gift us with so many beautiful things like mothers and and children, and and yet um, there are things wrong with this world. It, uh, It is broken and and even in the in the beauty, often there's there's pain and there's suffering, and um, sometimes it's difficult to to get our bearings. And as we prayed this morning, Lord, help our help our hearts and our minds be fixed on you. There's there's perfect peace for those who are fixed on you, Lord. So, I pray as we look at this passage in Isaiah this morning. I pray as we go about our weeks. I pray as we worship and and, and sing of your promises, even even after this, that. And every one of those moments, our hearts and our minds would be fixed on you in just a, a supernatural way that's done by your spirit. So I, th- I thank you for the glimpses of your glory. I thank you for the glimpses of your holiness and your beauty that you show to us, Lord. And we just want more of that. Um, so, so give us more of that as we look at what you have to say to your people this morning. In your name I pray, amen. So Isaiah is, um, is a, it's kind of a difficult book. Um, to say the least, um, for a couple of reasons. I think when, when any of us are preaching a sermon, um, or we're going through 1 Corinthians uh, most recently, or we're going through uh, uh, something that we want to learn, it's helpful to sort of take the, the whole thing, like read the whole book. Um, and if you're reading something like Mark, it's not very long, you can get through the book, it doesn't take you very long reading something like 1 Peter. It's a, it's a wonderful, like, encouraging letter. And even if there's some things in there that are, like, a little bit confusing, you can kind of read through the book a few times and say, okay, okay, I sort, of get, I sort of get the trend of sort of what's going on here. And Isaiah is difficult because it's 66 chapters long. Like, like even if you were to commit to reading through all of Isaiah, that, that would take hours. It does take hours. And it's difficult, and it's hard to follow. So it's, I think it's a, a hard book for, for that reason, because it's just so huge. You're, you're just trying to, like, follow the flow of what's going on in the book, and it's so gigantic that it's difficult to do that. And that's part of the reason why we broke up our series in Isaiah into sort of, like, five sections. And typically at Emmaus, when we preach through a book, we'll kind of go verse by verse or chapter by chapter. We'll just follow the flow of a book of the Bible and say, hey, how do we make sense of this? How do we understand what's going on here? What, how does this matter for my life today, and, and, and what should I be thinking about as I, as I apply myself to what God has said? So, Because Isaiah is so huge, we've broken it up into five parts. So I think we're 2024 is our estimated end time, I think. I don't, I don't know, if we're, we're not even that, Ben's laughing because we're not even like that far ahead of the planning. But we're thinking, you know, one or two parts a year, we can get to other parts of Scripture, and then we can come back and sort of work our way through Isaiah. In the first 12 chapters of Isaiah, we're very much talking to the people of God. The first 12 chapters are like, you are my children, you should look like me, and, and you've forgotten who I am. And so, so you don't, you don't image me, your heavenly father. That's a, the, this idea of, the, of a father desiring a parent uh, or, or, or nurturing, even a mother nurturing their children. Uh, we talk about Jerusalem as the, the daughter of my people. Uh, this familial, this idea of family is super important in the book of Isaiah. And, and, and the Lord is looking at his people and he's saying, you, I, I love you, I care for you, I rescued you, I raised you up as little children, and, and, you, and you don't, and you've rejected me. You've totally forgotten who I am. And so we get 12 chapters of, of sort of ex- explaining this. And as we go through the, 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 pro- the image problem that the children of God have in the first 12 chapters, it ends with kind of like a, an abysmal king uh, uh, and a king that kind of does everything wrong possible in, in, in a promise at the end in chapter 12 of a more wonderful king, or shows up in 11. And the response to that more wonderful king is worship and praise and peace and glory and honor. And, and what Ben kind of ended that section for us, he was telling us, this is, this is Isaiah promising who would, who would be to come, Jesus himself. This is Isaiah promising that when Jesus is on the throne, when we can see the beauty of what God is accomplishing, not through this terrible king in the book of Isaiah, not through even a good king like, like David in the history of Israel, but when, this, when the king, when Jesus is risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, 
God's people can rejoice. And I thought that was a really encouraging way to end the last section of Isaiah. And I was one of those chapters like, man, Ben gets to preach on like the exciting, like God, you know, Jesus is on the throne. We all get to rejoice and sing. So, and so then we, we jump into this next section, this sort of next like flow of the book of Isaiah. And from chapters 13 to 27, we have a lot of bad news. God is making statements on all of these different people, all these different people groups around Isaiah. And he kicks it off talking about Babylon. And at the time of writing, Babylon wasn't even, even that special. It ended up being one of the wonders of the ancient world, this magnificent city in the ancient world. And, and, and right at the beginning, right at the beginning, it's like Isaiah, it's like through Isaiah, God is saying, hey, everything that the, the, that the world has to offer, all the best things that the world has to offer are fading. All of, all of the ways that you can go after salvation all of the different ways you can try to avoid me and have joy and have peace in this life are ultimately going to end in destruction. So we get a bunch of chapters about all these sort of alternative nations or, or, or powers or, or things that God's people were turning to or enemies of God. We get a bunch of statements or we've been, we've been saying judgments. Uh, judgment is in like discerning. We've, this is probably the only sermon where we haven't brought up the definition of the word judgment, but it's like making a considered decision. Make a, you're making a judgment on when to wake up in the morning. You're making a, a judgment on where to go to eat after church. You're making a judgment on how to use your vacation time. We make judgments all the time. We make considered decisions about things. So God is giving us these judgments, these considered decisions about all these different nations, all these different nations that are not God's people. And so here we are then, as we walk through all these judgments, and the, after this week it's a, another set of nations, here we are in the middle of all of this, he has a judgment in the mixture of all these unbelieving nations on Jerusalem. So it should kind of make us wonder, if this is all the chapters about God's statements on these different nations, all these places that have rejected God, why all of a sudden then an entire chapter on God's city, God's, God's city, Jerusalem? And a, and a big part of that, and as we'll see as we kind of walk through this passage, is, is Isaiah is saying something about Jerusalem that you look like everybody else. You've actually, the, 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 so this is sort of the, our outline this morning is, is uh, context and circumstance, sin and servant. So this is kind of getting into the context of what's going on. Isaiah is basically saying, I'm walking through all these different nations. And you know what? Throw Jerusalem in there. Because right now they just look like everybody else. Throw Jerusalem in there because they're, they, may have, they may have the visions, which if you look at verse 1, it says the oracle concerning the valley of vision. It's an interesting phrase. It's not just a good book of prayers, which it is a good book of prayers um, that came obviously way later. So I'd recommend that book to you if you're interested in seeing how saints have prayed over the last few hundred years. It's a, it's a wonderful book called The Valley of Vision. But the title kind of comes from this chapter in Isaiah. But he says, you're the valley of vision. And it's an interesting, he's calling Jerusalem the valley of vision. And I think there's two sort of themes that are coming across when he says this. He's, he's saying, you have the visions you have actually God's judgments. Isaiah's been a prophet. We've had prophets before Isaiah. God has been speaking to you, Jerusalem. You're not ignorant of, the, of God's statements or God's considered decisions on the world. You, you've seen the visions. You, you understand what God is saying, but it's also speaking of, of Jerusalem as a valley because that's a dark place. That's often considered a, sort of a dark place in the Psalms. And, and Jerusalem was actually a city set on the hill but geographically, there were actually larger sort of mountains around it. So there's, there's sort of, he's sort of playing off of this. He's saying, you're, you're in the valley. There's darkness here, but yet you're the, actually the place where, the, where God's judgments, where God's visions have actually been shown to you. So you should know better. You should understand how God works. And he goes on to sort of describe the city. And this is kind of the, the context of what's going on. He says, what do you mean that you have gone up all of you to the housetops, you who are full of shouting, tumultuous city, exultant town. It's like, there's all this commotion. 
There's, there's all this sort of, uh, you know, it's hard not to think of like the rabble, 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 you know? Like I think Bridget's probably the only one that gets that joke. Um, long story. Um, but there's all, this, there's all of this commotion in the city of Jerusalem, but they're not really accomplishing anything. There's all of this sort of commotion and stirring and, and going out on the rooftops and sort of wondering what's going on. And, and they uses a handful of different words, this tumultuous city. Uh, the, the city is kind of stirring or exultant town. And, and we saw later that they were eating and drinking. There's kind of all these things going on. But the, the reality is that even though all these things are going on, the, the city itself has sort of like this inevitable decay. And that's what he's getting at in the next part of the verse. He says, you're slain or not slain with the sword or dead in battle. It's like, there's no fight here. There's no, there's no like engaging in, in sort of the warfare that they should have, been, should have been engaging in. It says, all your leaders have fled together without the bow they were captured. All of you who were found were captured though they had fled far away. So in this passage, he's saying, look, Valley of Vision, this dark place where God has actually spoken and given his judgments. You're, you're here. The context is you're here with all these lists of nations because you look the same. And there might be a lot of, uh, a lot of commotion going on. There might be a lot of stirring. But at the end of the day, you're not really engaged and you're, you're, you're inevitably just sort of wasting away, just like every other nation like every other nation that he sort of pronounced these judgments on as he's walked through this section of Isaiah. And it's a difficult, it's a difficult thing for the prophet Isaiah as he says these things. And this is what comes up in the next verse. Isaiah said, therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. I do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. So here's the context. We're here in the middle of these judgments on all these nations, and Isaiah is looking at Jerusalem and saying, you know what? You have the visions. You have the speech that God has given you in a way that the other nations don't, and yet you're a valley. And all of this stirring is happening, but at the end of the day, you guys are just wasting away. And he looks at God's people. And again, this is another element where this like familial aspect comes up. The, the daughter of my people. This is meant to, to bring us back to this reality that God is the father of his people and he sees his people and he sees them looking like everybody else. And he sees that decay that just comes from not listening to the visions and the judgments that come from God and he weeps. It's difficult. It's a difficult context for him. And so the, the circumstance is kind of what we go on in the next section. So why... Why is there such a, a, a difficult situation? What's the circumstance that's, that's brought about this context of, of Jerusalem sort of being just like kind of everybody else? And he goes on to say, for the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of the walls and a shouting to the mountains. For the Lord God of hosts has a day which is fascinating because you think, okay, well, if these things are happening because God has set a day, if these things are happening because God has brought this upon his people, then why would Isaiah be so tore up about it? Because it's, it's a pretty clear statement right there. The circumstances comes from God. For the Lord God of hosts has a day. And he gives us a handful of words to sort of describe that tumult trampling, confusion. These, these are not positive terms. He's saying God has actually set a day where God's people, in this context, God has set a day where God's people will be destroyed. And he, he kind of goes on to say, in Elam, another nation bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen and Kerr uncovered the shield, another neighbor that was coming against them. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots and the, the horsemen took their stand. He is he has taken away the covering of Judah. There's this, there's this idea of shame. Like they've sort of been, they've been uncovered. But it's, it's interesting that this whole circumstance, this whole circumstance starts with God saying, God has determined a day. The Lord God of hosts has a day. So he is the one who has brought about this circumstance. 
And I think that's difficult a little bit for us to wrestle with, but uh, Mother's Day and the, the idea of the sort of familial aspect of what's going on in Isaiah is good because God, is, God has been telling us, Ben gave us a sermon on this a couple of weeks ago, God has been telling us over and over again that when there's suffering, when there's pain, when there's difficulty, these things are things that come from my hand and are meant to humble you and bring you low, and I work through suffering. I work through suffering to draw you closer into my presence. I work through all these difficult things so that at the end of the day, I bring the difficulty. I have a day in your life where it's difficult because I draw you closer to my presence. Because it's through my humiliation, it's through my suffering that actually enables me to enjoy and grip onto and sense more of the presence of the Lord. And that's a big part of what we've called this series, His Judgments in His Presence. Because God is actually telling us that he uses our suffering. He's, this is the valley of vision. This is not like a new, we're multiple chapters into the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah has been proclaiming these things for a long time. He's saying, I use these, this suffering. I use these difficult things. I use the humiliation of my people to ultimately to bring them closer to the Lord. And I think this is, I was thinking about that and I was like, Where, what's a thing that like mom and dad have been like struggling with, with like kids in our community um, that is like suffering for the children, but is also ultimately something that's for their good. And I, and I think this is important because it, as far as Christianity is concerned, we're not, we're not saying that as, as we are united to Christ, as we worship and enjoy God, that, that he is gonna protect us from suffering in this world. We're not saying that that as believers, as Christians, the, the joy that we have as a family, which is, is, is true and is wonderful joy, we're not saying that this protects us from difficult, hard things in the world. What we're saying that I think is, is sets us apart from the rest of the world is we're saying that that suffering that comes, that humiliation that comes is ultimately something that God uses to draw us closer to him. He has a purpose. There's actually a purpose in the difficult things that we go through. And, I, and I, so I was thinking about kids, like where is this illustrated? And the, the thing, you know, the first, I don't, I don't know, six to eight months is like, man, I wish they would just sleep right, like on this schedule or at this time, or we could just figure out whatever it is. And then after that, it's been fun to watch Quinn figure out dinner time <laughs> and, and being fed. It's like, right, like, like you can get a kid to eat the snacks that they really like Whenever you want, you just put the thing in front of them that's like delicious and, and fruity or, or whatever it is they enjoy. But if you're like, now it's five o'clock and you need to eat like a whole meal of food that's good for you so that you can sleep through the night and have a better e evening and so the mom and dad can have a better evening so that it can be better for you, that's suffering for a two-year-old. <laughs> and then also for mom and dad. <laughs> It's like the, some of the Snapchats I've seen of the, the food everywhere. But it's, mom and dad are not, are not making Quinn or making uh, Mava or making Rhett suffer because they don't love their child. It, they, could, they could just snack on junk food all day and, and the kid would probably like you more for that. But the, to sit a kid down and, and feed them something that's good for them, to, to give them food that's nutritious and, and not maybe sweet and attractive, to give them food that at a time that is not convenient for them is, is a healthy practice that's difficult for a young child. And I think that sort of explains the circumstance of what's going on with God. The Lord, it says the Lord God has brought a day. He's brought a day on suffering on, in all of our lives at different times. He's brought humiliation into our life in a lot of different ways in a lot of our lives. And he's, he, he's, he's trying to tell us through this whole book of Isaiah, I'm the one who does these things. I'm the one who orchestrates every tiny little instance of your life. And I'm doing that because I love you because you're my children. I'm doing that. I'm bringing these circumstances into your life because at the end of the day, I want you to just turn to me I want you to just enjoy me. I want you to, to bask in the presence, in the glory, in the beauty of our heavenly father because of the good news of the gospel.
And we get a little hint of that when he says, he has taken away the covering of Judah. He has taken away the covering of Judah. This is a, this is a statement that actually links us to the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations starts out with the, the, the shame, the idea of Jerusalem being shamed and, and uncovered. And, it, and I think that that's, that's an interesting analogy because it's all of those threads of Jerusalem being destroyed, all those threads of the shame of God's people being uncovered are ultimately leading us to Christ exposing himself naked and ashamed on the cross. They're ultimately dragging us forward to look at on that day when God didn't discipline the children that he loves, which is us, but he disciplined his one and only beloved son who did nothing wrong. He was shamed. He was shamed. He was uncovered. He was destroyed so that you and I could be in the family, so that you and I could could have the food we don't want to take fed to us so that God has affections for us and brings these circumstances so that you and I could be drawn closer to the glory and the beauty of God. And, that, and, and that's the gospel. That's the, that's the good news of ultimately the destruction of Christ on the cross so that we could even be talking about the fact that God loves you, that God is bringing difficult things into your life, that God is... is, is orchestrating all these circumstances so that at the end of the day, you could draw closer to him, enjoy more of him, and appreciate more of his beauty. And I think that's just a wonderful reminder as we kind of work through this passage. And, and the difficult part is, so these are the, those are the context and the circumstances. We're talking about the sin and the servant. The sin and the servant. The difficult part is we can believe that. Theoretically, you know, like, like, suffering is hard, and, there, and there, we want explanations for it. We want, we, want, we want it gone, which is appropriate. We shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't bring those things on ourselves. But suffering is difficult. And when we're in the midst of our suffering, it's much, 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 much more difficult. When, when the child is tossing all the food all over the floor, it's, our first thought isn't like, thank you, Lord, for bringing the circumstance into my life so that I can be drawn into your presence and enjoy your beauty and glorify you forever. You know, that's, that's not our first thought. <laughs> so it's a good theoretical thing to talk about, God using our suffering to bring us closer to him. It's a good theoretical thing to talk about using our humiliation to bring us closer to what Christ has done and closer, closer to him. But a lot of times our sin our sin gets in the way of that. We, we respond to situations poorly. We respond to situations in a way that, that has more to do with our sin than the glory and the wonder and the beauty and the presence of God. And we get kind of in, the, in this section here that we'll go through, there's gonna be um, this surprise three bullet points under sin. So um, there's three ways I think that we see Jerusalem respond that keeps them from actually enjoying, keeps them from actually suffering in a way that draws them closer to Christ, that, that keeps them from enjoying the beauty and the wonder and the glory of the presence of God. So there's sort of three ways that they respond that keeps them from enjoying the presence of God. And, and those three ways are they're, they're doing, they're ignoring, and they're misusing. Our sin causes us to, to do things to ignore things, and to misuse things. And, it, and that's really what kind of keeps us from enjoying the presence of God. Look at what, look at what he says at the rest of verse 8. Uh, this is the day where God has brought suffering. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the, the walls for the water of the old pool. He's talking about when suffering came, you did all these things. These are actually good things. In other places in Scripture, kings are uh, commended for doing these things. It's like when, 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 when the hardships come, when Jerusalem is under attack, you're, you're being strategic. You're doing the things. You're, you're collecting the waters in the pool. You're like, okay, well, when this wall gets torn down, we'll destroy these houses, and then we'll build up this wall. So you, he's saying you're doing all these good things. And a lot of times when God brings suffering, we do. We, we jump into doing good things, and we, and we should do that. But look at what happens in the, the next verse. There's this but. 
but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. How many times do we do good things without a thought for God himself? How many times do we do good things without pleading with the Lord to use those to draw me closer to him? You know, I think about our jobs. Those are good things. Employment. Not that many new jobs were created recently. But being employed is a great thing. Honors God, glorifies God. If you're able to work, that's a wonderful thing to do. It's a good thing. We should be thankful for the opportunity that we have to work. How much of our work is considering the presence of God? How much of our work is asking the Lord? We suffer at work for sure. That's part of the curse in Genesis 3. How much of the suffering at work do we say, Lord, you've brought this circumstance into my life so that I can rely on, grow in, understand, and appreciate and love you more? How often are we humiliated at work Maybe we just did something wrong. Maybe we weren't appreciated for something we did right. And how often do we see that as an opportunity to cling closer to the Lord? That's a good thing. We should work. It's a good thing that they were, they were building up the, the walls. It's a good thing that they were protecting the pools. But, but you didn't look on him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. In our sin, God brings these things. We jump into these good things, but we, we think more about the doing than we think about God himself. And then at the end of the day, we ask, man, why don't I feel God's presence anymore? Why, why am I not encouraged by the gospel? And a lot of times it's because our sin gets in the way. We're just doing the things. We're not considering the Lord. Another is uh, ignoring. This is difficult for me to read for myself. Um, it says, in that day, verse 12, when suffering comes, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and for wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's this, there's this suffering that's coming. There's these difficult things that God brings into our lives, and what do we do? It's easy. We live in Denver. We can go out to eat somewhere. We can... Find a mountain to go hike. We can game pretty hard. You know, there's so many different things we can do to just sort of forget about the difficult things in our life. We do that. We just ignore it. It says, the, the Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. And I think he's, it's sort of a, if you if you're familiar with Christian language, for, for a sin to not be atoned for, iniquity, for a sin to not be atoned for is like a little bit of a scary thing. Because it's the, 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 the fact that Jesus died on the cross and was suffered for our sake is why we're part of the family. Like our, our sin was laid on him and his righteousness was laid on us. That's this idea of atonement of the sin is, is laid on him. And he's saying when they when there should have been mourning and there should have been weeping and there should have been considering what God was doing in their life, instead there was joy in celebrating and eating and drinking. And I think that statement is there because it's meant to shock us a little bit. It's meant to say, if you spend the rest of your life ignoring the difficult things that God brings into your life, if you spend the rest of your life using the world and the things of the world, the eating and the drinking, to not have to deal with or wrestle with the rest of the things that are going on in your life, that, that is a little bit of a scary place to be. God, God is bringing this suffering to bring you closer to him. God is, God is, God is working in our lives and, and putting us into his family so that we wouldn't ignore this, the suffering that's around us. He, he calls us to repentance. He calls us to, to turn from these lesser things and to turn to him. And I think there's an element, this is, this is, this is poetry, this isn't like uh, the book of Romans, like the full theology of justification, but, but there's an element here where he's saying, if you spend your whole life ignoring these things, there may not be atonement. 
And that's a scary place to be. He's saying, look, God is the one who brings these difficult things. God is the one who's working particularly in your life, not so that you can enjoy more of the world, but so that you can enjoy more of him. That's what he wants. That's what he's bringing us to. And in our sin, we just get stuck in this this sort of spiral of just forgetting about the difficult things in our life and and forgetting about the fact that God is trying so hard and pleading with us and and just begging with us to, to come to him, to enjoy him, to rest in the, the good news of the gospel that you have been atoned for and what Christ has done. And, and it's so easy for us to just like lose track of that and distract ourselves away with whatever it is so we don't have to wrestle with the difficult things of our life. He goes on to give us another example of, of how our sin kind of gets in the way of enjoying the Lord and, and as we misuse things. We get, we get Shebna here. In verse 15, he says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household. This is someone who would have been sort of in charge of all the administrative things um, in in the kingdom. Uh, There's even some commentators that say uh, the kings would get lazy and wouldn't rule and reign properly. So they set up this like other like side dude to kind of do it for them. So it's, it's in one sense, this, this uh, position could even be sort of outside what God's purposes were for, for Jerusalem. But, but he, he goes to this, this household manager, to this guy that's kind of over all these things, and he says, what have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock? And it's like, oh, what? Um, how are we, what are we misusing here? Um, and, and it's just this idea that there, there was, uh, they would bury, uh, uh, having like a wealthy place to be buried, uh, a prestigious place to, to put your body uh, was, was sort of like a, a valuable thing in the ancient world. And I think this shows up even in, in the crucifixion. He, w- he was buried, uh, he was killed with the, the sinners uh, and the robbers, but he was buried with the wealthy. They're sort of like, an, uh, just, uh, I forget the guy's name that gives him gives him the tomb. Uh, anyways, but there, there's that. So what he's doing, Shebna is, there's all these things going on in Jerusalem, and he's like, man, I'm in this position of power right now. Uh, this is not so good. I'm going to make sure I build myself a sweet tomb. I'm going to misuse the things and the resources that God has given me for myself. And that's a lot of times, that's what we do when God brings suffering. We take, the, we take our resources, we take the, the things that we sort of have been given in our lives. Sometimes that's our money. I think for a lot of our community, it's diff- more difficult for our time. My time is something that I want to use for myself. And we're suffering. We almost get like more protective of those things. Our friends, our, our, our purposes or our intentions, or we want to set ourselves up. We, God, is, God is actually working in us. I uh, don't have the cool banners up here where he's working in us to image him, to show outward love to those around us. He's rescued us and brought us into the family so that we wouldn't be self-oriented and we'd be others-oriented. And a lot of times when we suffer, we turn that around. In our sin, we say, Lord, I know you brought me into a place where I, I am to look like your son. I am to image him. And like he poured himself out for me, I want to pour myself out for others. And I know that through pouring myself out, because you've made these statements, Lord, through pouring myself up out, that's what you use. That's what you use to draw me closer to you. That's what you actually use to enable me to have, to have strength because I'm, I'm strengthened by your presence. I'm strengthened by the Holy Spirit that's inside of me. I'm strengthened by the beauty and the glory and the wonder and the beauty of the gospel. But so often when we're suffering in our sin, we misuse the things and the resources and the time we've, we've been given by God for ourselves and not for others. And it's just, that's difficult. And that's hard. And this, is, this is why Jerusalem looks like everybody else. It's natural. But we're saying this is a supernatural religion. We're saying that we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit and the, the things that we, we are leaning into, the things that we're saying are possible, are not possible anywhere else. 
And we're saying that if we actually give ourselves out for others, we will enjoy more of the beauty and the glory and the wonder and the presence of God as he dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. So that we actually don't look like the nations around us. It's interesting how he responds to Shebna here. Which is what, uh, which I think Abraham couldn't help but laugh when he read this section. What have you to do here? <laughs> And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You've misused the resources I've given you. You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock, behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. It's dramatic. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. Intense. And that's how serious God takes his people being used for his purposes. This is, this is, this is the, the daughter of his people. This is Jerusalem. This is the crown jewel of the very presence of God in, with the temple of God so that the people could image God to the world. And he says, you're going to put yourself in the temple of God. You're going to be in my presence and you're going to use the resources I've given you for yourself. I'm going to ball you up and cast you out because he takes those things serious. And I, it's hard. I mean, we read through this and we think about our own sin, especially in light of when we're suffering and things are difficult. We think about how we respond to circumstances and we do stuff or we ignore stuff or we misuse stuff. And it's easy to, I mean, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to, to hear these things and sort of get down on ourselves. It's easy to, to hear how we fail and, and be brought low. Um, and in a real sense, I feel like if we're honest, we're a little humiliated by, by the reality of what God is saying if we take a second to just examine ourselves in our own lives. But, th- but this is why God works in our humiliation because he's pointing us towards someone who is, who is not this servant. He's pointing us to a new servant. He's pointing us to someone who lived his entire life. He's pointing us to someone who spent day and night working, eating, drinking, suffering, never once succumbing to any of these sins. He's pointing us to the servant. And this is a, we get a, a wonderful little picture of this, of the gospel. And as we work through this book of Isaiah, we're, we're going to do the servant songs is, is how it's talked about. These are some of the more familiar parts uh, of Isaiah for most of us. It says, by his stripes, the servant stripes, we are healed. These are, these are things we remember and, and are, are vivid and are talking about the gospel. But we get a little taste of this gospel, even in this passage when he talks about my servant. Look at verse 20, he says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and I will commit your authority to his hand. And look at this, we get this familial aspect here. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. He shall be a father. We're talking about the servant who will be risen up on the throne. We're talking about the, the good news of Jesus, the fact that he, he never succumbed to any of these temptations to, to do and not consider the Lord. He never succumbed to any of the temptations when God brought suffering to ignore what was going on. He actually leaned into it. He never succumbed to any of those temptations to misuse the fact that he was there to give him his life for others. Never once did he twist that around and do anything that was for himself. His whole life was for others. And he's the servant that will be placed there. And verse 22 gives us a, a picture of this that John picks up in Revelation. But in verse 22, it says, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. It's, just, it's this idea that when we have the servant of God, when we have the king sitting on the throne, he's the one who's going to decide who's in the family. He's the one that's going to decide who's part of Jerusalem because he's the only one that's done this perfectly. He's the only one that can actually stand before the Lord and say, I am here on the throne because I deserve it. 
and he's the one who we worship, and he's the one who we say is beautiful. And it's because our sin has been atoned for, because the fact that we, we do fail, we do misuse things, we do do things instead of think of the Lord, because of the fact that we do all those things, those have been placed on Christ. And we, so now we can place everything that, is, that, that could ever be a, even an inkling of our worth can be placed on Christ, and he is the one that makes us worthy. He's taken our sin and we've taken his righteousness. That's, that's, that's the reason why he can be a father to us. That's the reason why we can enjoy the presence of God. It's not because we, we did all the right things, but because God has united us to his son and now everything and anything and who you are, your worth, your weight, your value is now set upon God's servant, the only beloved son. And that's what he kind of goes on to say. And I will place on his shoulders the key of the house of David. And then verse 23, talking about a servant. I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. Amen. I, will pass, I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. If this was based on our ability to do these things right, we would not be in a secure place. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house the offspring, and, and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. It's these little like trinkets that they would use for the temple. So basically like everything possible, everything possible that could be worthy is gonna be set upon him and he will be a peg in a secure place. This is the, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is why we can, we can be humiliated by the fact that we do fall short because, because our honor is fixed in a peg that's secure. My worth, your value, who you are, if you trust in, and are united to Christ, has nothing to do with what you did or didn't do last week. At the same time, God is pleading with you and saying, I still want you to enjoy more of me. I still want you to see the suffering that I bring into your life is actually something that I'm bringing to draw you closer to me. I, I love you and I'm reaching out to you because of this peg that's secure, but you're missing out on all of the benefits of, of being in the house of David. He's opened the door and we've walked in and we're, we're not enjoying the presence and the, the temple of God that's, that's dwelling in us. So he's telling us these things. He's, he loves us. He's reaching out to us with these things because he wants us to enjoy more of his presence. But at the end of the day, it's not about our faithfulness. It's not about our confidence in our thing. It's about his faithfulness. It's about our confidence in what he has done. And there's a, Interesting last verse that a, a lot of commentators kind of struggle with, and I'll give my, my two cents. Um, it says, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened, okay, we got this secure peg, will give way and will be cut down and fall. And the load that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. So it's weird because you're like, wait a minute. I thought the servant was the secure place. I thought, I thought the servant is where I was supposed to find rest and, and, and set everything up on so there's a secure place. Why does this secure peg fall? That doesn't sound like a place we should hang the cups and the flagons, whatever those are. <laughs> Waiting for someone to serve me at uh, their house and be like, what flagon would you like? But why does this peg fall down? And I think we get, a, I think we get a, a glimpse of this reality that we see all through the book of Isaiah. The fact that we can have confidence that we know that God works in our humiliation and our suffering is because the peg did fall down. The peg was destroyed. The peg was nailed to a cross and endured the wrath of God and was buried. But this is just a tiny picture. And we're gonna see more of it as we work through Isaiah. It's not just suffering for suffering's sake. It's suffering for glory. He's risen up again. We get the whole picture. We see that the wrath of God was actually poured out on Christ. The, 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 the secure peg that was fixed, that we can trust in, was defeated, was buried, died. And, in, and it looked like in every sense of the word, failed at everything that he did. Because from the world's perspective, 
suffering and humiliation is only failure. But he's pointing us to the resurrection. He's saying, look, the wrath has been poured out on the peg. You can hang everything on him. And in him, this is why we have baptism. We, we've, been, we've gone under the wrath of God. We've, we've fallen under the wrath of God, but we've, we're risen up again. We're risen up again in new life. We have the Holy Spirit. He's equipped us so that you and I can actually look different. So that, as we talked about, this is Jerusalem. We're gathering to worship God as the people of God in the very presence of God. But now that the wrath has been poured out on him and he's been risen up to new life, you and I are new creations. You and I are the the new Jerusalem. You and I are equipped with the Holy Spirit so we don't look like everybody else around us. So we don't just ignore suffering. So we don't have to just do things and not consider the Lord. You have the Holy Spirit in you. Because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and has equipped you to actually look different than everybody else around you. That's the beauty of the gospel. I hope that's encouraging. I hope as you think about the the ways we do fail, the things we do without considering the Lord, all the stuff we do every week to ignore difficult things in our lives. As we think about these things, I hope it's encouraging to you that God is saying you are equipped by the Holy Spirit to look differently than everyone else around you. That's the truth. And thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift, a secure peg that suffered and rose again. And those of us who are united to him are equipped to look different than the world around us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you remind us of the good news, even as you tell us how we're missing out on enjoying your presence as we ignore your judgments. You know we're fragile and you know we need the beauty of the gospel. We need to again and again value what Christ has done so that we could could be open with with each other. We could be open with ourselves about how we fall short on these things, Lord. And at the end of the day, so that we can enjoy more of your presence. You're so patient. You're so kind to us. You're so compassionate to your children. Help us believe that when we're dealing with difficult things, Lord, that you have brought into our lives. This isn't for wrath. This is because you love us and want to draw us closer to you. So help us believe that. In your name I pray, amen.